Man, I don't have to ask you this, but I think you're glad you came to church today. Amen? Woo! God has been at work in this place. I know I'm not supposed to talk about first service, but the Holy Spirit met with us in Psalm 23 and did some incredible things. And I anticipate that God is going to meet with us again. So if you have your Bibles, open up to the 23rd Psalm. We're in a series called The Good Shepherd. Um, And uh, to kind of set today up, we're going to be looking at verses 3 and 4 of this six-verse psalm. We've been trying to commit it to memory over the course of this series, and I've had the joy of preaching that for three weeks, and I graciously asked for an extension since I couldn't get through all six verses, so I get to come back and hang out with you next week, which is going to be a lot of fun on your 10-year anniversary, and finish verses 5 and 6. So it's going to be a lot of fun to be back and celebrate that. I want to couple things. One, in 10 years, over 700 people have made professions of faith through this church. Yeah. There's, there's been a, a lot, because when you, when you set out, and I'll talk about this some later, but when you set out to be a part of a local church, it's a declaration of war against a kingdom that's been set up against the kingdom of God. And, and you don't enter into just a passive enemy. You enter into an aggressive enemy. Uh, who wants to sift you, destroy you, discourage you, get you to think that God lost control of the church so that you don't need to be engaged or around and at work in it. And this church, like any church, has been through some stuff, and God's still been faithful in this church just like he's been through other broken churches that have been around. You're not going to find perfect people in any church, and you definitely ain't going to find them here with a barefoot preacher up on the stage hanging out in the season. <laughs> But I want to tell you, God's here, and he's still at work through his bride doing beautiful things in the mess and the brokenness of humanity. And that's why we have a hope. Um, As we're getting ready to jump into this text, about two months ago, I almost died. And I'm not talking like I pulled out in an intersection and a car honked their horn and I had that adrenaline rush where like you were asleep, but now you're wide awake, like you just took six shots of espresso. And I'm not talking about that. We come back. I've lived in California for 13 years now as a pastor of a church out there. And we would come back to Greenville, which is where we're from, and do vacation with our family. And we've gone from zero nieces and nephew to seven nieces and nephew in the upstate. So it's a busy vacation when we come back. There's a lot to do. And at the end of that vacation, we were going back out there to go into another season of leading the church we were in. And we got on the airplane, and I got COVID and didn't know I got COVID. So for four days, my body was breaking down, and I had no clue why. Like, I, I, I didn't know what was going on. And around that time, before I got COVID, my wife and I had been talking about the fact that we felt like God had asked us to step down from where we had been for almost 13 years, that our season was done. Uh, Believe it or not, we don't just make up stuff to preach as preachers. Instead, God gives us stuff through his word and tells us to deliver it to you so that you can feed on it, be encouraged by it, be built up in Christ by it. And I was studying and getting a lot from God, but I wasn't feeling like he was telling me to put it out there where I had been. So it was a weird season. And so I'd stepped down, had COVID, didn't know it. We got to Sunday night after getting back on that Wednesday, and we're walking through Walmart, and my wife says to me, she says, "Uh, I need to get one more thing. And I don't know if you've ever been so tired and broken down to where the most simple of inconveniences just seems like they just asked you to like lay down and surrender your life. But like I looked at her and leaned over the buggy and I was like, I can't move. I can't move. Like I, I gotta, I gotta like go get that willy thing that you got that you put your groceries in. Like, like will me out of here. Like I can't move around. And it didn't occur to me, hey, you're in a pandemic and you may have COVID. Like, that just didn't register. I'm healthy, I'm young, you know, like, I work out, like, once a month. Um, (laughs) We're good. 
But by the time I got to the next morning, I couldn't crawl out of bed. And so we, in that moment, realized, I, I need to go get a COVID test. I paid like $1,000 and got a rapid COVID test. I thought I would ride it out. Like the first hour or two of it was really fun because it's like no one can enter the threshold of your, of your room. And I'm just sitting there watching Sports Center for like the third time. Hadn't done that since like 10th grade. But, but my body continued to break down. I lost 20 pounds in 10 days. Uh, I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. Uh, I couldn't do anything. Here's what was most tormenting about it. About day seven, when everyone's supposed to, you know, turn the corner, I turned a different corner. And I went in the opposite direction. And I couldn't sense the presence of God anymore. Uh, I know that for some of you that's a lifelong struggle. Like you don't sense the presence of God around you maybe on a frequent basis. But like I believe as a follower of Jesus and as a pastor, it's my job to prioritize being in the word of God before the spirit of God and being led and living by the spirit of God in my daily living. And so it was weird to me to sense that I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't pray, I couldn't worship, I couldn't read, I couldn't do anything. I was just physically broken. And so they like crawled me out to the car took me to the hospital, and I want to say something before I say the next thing about what happened in that experience. Our healthcare workers have worked their behinds off for the last 18 months. They deserve your honor. They deserve you buying coffees for them. They deserve you giving them date nights when you can. Like, we should honor what is honorable in our community, and that has been very honorable in this last season. Amen? Can we, can we give praise for that? Yeah. And so I, I went into this exhausted hospital where they were just tired. They stuck me in a broom closet with six other people that had COVID. And honestly, they forgot about me four times in the next seven and a half hours. They didn't even know I was there. And about the fourth time she said, honey, I, I was like not filled with righteous anger, but with anger from the, the bowels of hell. Like I was just frustrated. And I, no one would help me. No one could give me answers. My body was breaking down. So I went back home. I walked out of the ER, went back home, went three more days until I couldn't even hardly breathe. So every breath, this is around day 10 or 11, every breath in was met by this on the way out. And it was torment to where I can't sense God, I don't want what's going on, but my wife comes in and I'm losing my mind. Like I know some people say that, like I am legitimately out of my mind. I'm like, I've messed our family up. I've screwed everything up. You're gonna leave me? The kids are going to hate me. Like, we have screwed our life up. We're going to end up destitute, and I'm going to live up. I'm going to die in a dumpster. Like, like, that's what's going to happen. Like, this, we have completely forsaken, like, God here. Like, God's just turned his back on us. I, I, I was struggling to understand the goodness of God in my suffering. Anybody ever been there? Like, like, you're just at that point where you're like, how can God be good and near and not either be angry or just passive towards me because of what I'm going through? And for some of you, that's where you're at. You can't sense the presence of God. You don't know where he's at. You don't know what he's doing. The valley is deep. The shadows are large. And you're overwhelmed by what you're going through. A couple days later, we get in the car and we went to another doctor. And uh, it was as if the, the spirit of God just flooded back in. I don't know if you've ever felt a dry desert season in your life when you couldn't sense God's presence. And then that moment where like the Holy Spirit came and reminded you I was there the whole time. But I had that moment, we were in our minivan, we pulled up to the doctor, and that Lauren Daigle song that Emma just slayed came on, right? When I'm not somebody I believe in, when I can't see you, and I think it's the end, and the Holy Spirit just flooded that car, and I just felt the Lord go, no, 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 I love you, son, I'm not done. And I walked in, and there was no one in the doctor's office. 
Yeah, no one. I walked right into the doctor. He hooked me right up to an IV. They took care of me, and within a few hours, I felt like a new person. But he looked at me and he said, son, here's the deal. You got pneumonia on the left side of your lungs, and if you had waited five more days, you would have been on a vent, and I don't know that you would have come off of it. I was in a difficult season of life. The 23rd Psalm is a praise that was written by King David, reflecting on the goodness of God to lead him through some difficult seasons of life. He reminds us of the character of God in the text. We learn in the first verse that he is Jehovah Jireh. He's the God that provides. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's our provider. He's our Jireh. But on top of that, he is Jehovah Shalom. He's the God who is our peace. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He leaves me beside still waters. He's my peace. So in this reflection, King David has thought about the fact that in the presence of God, he has a provider who brings peace into his life. Now, shalom is a strong Hebrew word. I mentioned it the other week and got a little bit ahead of myself, but shalom is the word that is used to describe creation before Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates and it's good. God created humanity in his image and it was very good. So go ahead and look at your neighbor and be like, neighbor, you very good. Come on, let them know. Let them know. Neighbor, you very good. Now look at your second choice and let them know, hey, neighbor over there, you good too. You good too. You good too. Hopefully your second choice wasn't your spouse. If so, we offer marriage counseling. We can talk to you about that. Shalom is a word that's used to describe life as it should be. The world you live in, according to the Bible, is not as it should be. In perfect shalom, we're told there was peace between God and creation, God and us. There was peace between us as humanity and creation. There was peace between us and our neighbor, something that none of you know about at the holidays because the cops get called every other year. There was peace between us and ourselves, but sin introduces us to trouble, pain, brokenness, and death. Now, because of sin, on the other side of Genesis 3, in the breaking of shalom, we now have our bodies that break down. We get old, stuff gets stiff, it hurts, and eventually it gives out on us, or I've heard. <laughs> Childbirth is painful. I've seen it, I've never experienced it, but it doesn't look fun, and I'm not signing up for none of that. Work is back-breaking, and even with the best of efforts, it can prove unfruitful. You can do the right things and work hard and get uh, passed over for the promotion. You can work hard and your business still shuts down and can't make it out of COVID. I mean, th this is a broken world where you can do the right thing and get unrighteous results, because in this world, it rains on both the righteous and the unrighteous. The faithful and the unfaithful both experience uh, difficulty on this side of eternity. You see, this world is upside down because shalom has been broken. As a result, we wrestle with our identity like Jacob, not believing that we're worthy enough to be blessed by our Father, so we have to earn the blessing, and so we're never comfortable in our own skin. Uh, we envy and we murder like Cain because we're not good with God blessing others because we realize in our minds that maybe if he's blessing them, it means he'll run out of resource to bless us because we've not yet known that he's a God with the cattle on 10,000 hills, not the God with a few cattle on a few hills. Him blessing others doesn't mean he can't be good in a blessing to you in the same breath. You see, we envy and we murder like Cain. We resist God and desire to be God, building towers to ourselves in our glory like the Tower of Babel. 
We, being made to worship God, have forsaken that sacred duty which we were created for. And as a result now, we live desiring to be worshipped, building social media followings and platforms, uh, living off of the likes and the accolades of what others say about us, trying to build up an altar for them to worship us as we sit on it, not understanding that as the altar grows, it's going to crush us under its weight because we are not what has been made to be worshipped in this life. There's only one God who's worthy of worship, one Lord who's worthy of a bent knee, and it's not you. You gotta be careful whenever you begin building up followings of people that follow you because what ends up happening is they deify you at first but they demonize you later. Be careful. Whenever you get into a relationship with someone who doesn't know Jesus as king, for real king, because in the South, everyone's Christian and everyone's on plenty of fish. <laughs> don't think I don't know. I'm a nosy preacher. I pay attention to what's going on with the single folk. Just because they own plenty of fish don't mean they're a born-again believer. That's a website where you get dating information. Back in the day, you would go into a restaurant. You would see an attractive person. You would go up to them and say, hey, attractive person, this is really brave of me, but I'd like to stick my neck out on the line and say, would you be interested in let me take you to a candlelight dinner at the Waffle House? That's not the way it works anymore. Now, now, you just swipe right or left, and they like emailing, and they're like, you want to hang out? Yeah, QT at 7. Like, like, like that's the way it works, apparently. I know nothing of this world. Here's what I want to make sure you understand, though. Whenever you begin to enter into that kind of relationship with someone who doesn't know Jesus as king, they'll deify you because their soul needs a savior. Their soul needs a God to serve. And if you uh, get in that relationship, they'll, they'll say flattering things to you because you're a serviceable God to them. But before long, they'll begin to blame you for the fact that their soul is crying out for something that you were never meant to provide. So you'll find yourself in a position of being demonized by someone, being made to feel less than by someone because we live in a broken world where we were created to worship God, but we don't worship God. We turn away and we want to worship ourselves or creation over the creator. That's why Paul, who was better than all of us, okay, let me just be clear. When it comes to being a human being, Paul was way better of a human than you and I ever were. To be a Pharisee and a lead teacher in the New Testament, it likely means he had memorized Genesis all the way through Malachi. I'm not talking like he had done some Awana Bible verse memorizing, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Uh, that, that's great. I love that. I'm talking, you could walk up to a Pharisee or a teacher of the law and say Genesis 7, 6, and they could rattle it off like that without hesitation. They committed their entire childhood to memorizing the Old Testament. But between the ages of five and nine, they would have been in a rabbinical school where they would have memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So that by age nine, from memory, the best of the best in the class could recite any part of that from memory. If you weren't the best of the best, guess what you got to do? You went home. And whatever your parents did, that's what you did. There was no like, I'm going to explore my options. I'm going to spread my wings and fly. No, you're going to go and make shoes. You can go and shovel poop. You can go and fish. You can go mend nets. That's what you're going to do, whatever your daddy did. So there was some uh, motivation if you weren't into the family's uh, job background to pay attention in school because otherwise that's what you were going to end up doing. But between the ages of 9 and 15, if you were the best of the best, you would go on and memorize the rest of the Bible all the way through the end of the Old Testament that would have been present when Jesus walked the earth, and that's the book of Malachi. Memorized. I'm talking Leviticus, y'all. Memorized. They cherished the word. He had put it to memory. And in spite of all of his accolades of self-righteousness, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 says this about not you but himself. He says, what a wretched man I am. 
wait, Paul, that's, that's negative self-talk. You need, to, you need to reverse that. You need to build yourself up. You need, you need to say positive things about yourself. Well, apparently he didn't get the memo, and the Bible put it in a sacred scripture. That the summation for you and I in living a life of self-righteousness and self-effort apart from Jesus, if we have our sobering moment, will lead to this moment where we realize, I'm trying as hard as I can, and there is a significant gap between the person I know I should be and the person that I am, and I don't know how to jump that anymore. I'm tired of falling in the caverns of the canyons and everything else, trying to get there on my own. I need someone who can bridge the gap between what I am and who I know I've been created to become. What a wretched man am I? Who will rescue me? This is the best of the best that we got. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God who delivers me from Jesus Christ our Lord. And so as we go through this text, what I want you to see is he is Jireh, he is Shalom, he's our provider, he's our peace. And now that leads us into verse three, which says this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He, when you come to that moment of realizing I'm far away, I'm, I'm not where I wanna be, not doing what God created me to do. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. The word restores, that's a strong Word. It, it brings up imagery to the people that would have been listening to it back in the Old Testament of the shepherds after wintertime had gone and summertime was on the horizon, just before the sheep would have their winter coats sheared off of them. Now, we talked about the lack of athleticism that sheep have. Uh, but after growing out a lot of wool, they are like penguins that aren't athletic. They waddle, and unfortunately, from time to time, this happens to them. And when this happens... If someone doesn't come and tip them over, they will die. That is walking ribs to any prey that comes by. That's a free meal. And no matter how much the sheep tries, it will not get back on its feet. It can do all kinds of self-talk and, oh, you're a really good sheep. You've got lots of wool for your guy. You can say whatever you want to say. But unless a shepherd comes, and usually in Old Testament times with a crook, pulls that sheep back up on his feet, it's going to die. Let me be very clear. You and I, apart from the work of Christ, are in the same state. You may think that you look good on your back with your legs waving up in the air and screaming out, you know, like, I'm doing really well, I'm going to improve next year. I got resolutions. But at the end of the day, you and I need someone who can come and make what's upside down right side up. You see, the word rescue suggests that in his character, the good shepherd is Jehovah Rapha, which means he's the Lord who heals. He's the Lord who heals. So he's Jehovah Jireh, he provides. He's Jehovah Shalom, he's our peace. But he's Jehovah Rapha, he heals us. He doesn't look at us and go, that's broke. You might want to fix that. You might want to stand back up on your legs. I think you're supposed to stand on those things, the, the things that are waving in the air. Stand on those. That'd be a really good idea. No, he heals us. He's our healer. If you look on in verse 4 at the end of it, it says this, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So we see a shepherd with his shepherd's crook, and he uses it to pull unstable sheep to himself. And let me be very clear. There's sheep in denial, and there's unstable sheep. I want to be very clear with you. I'm an unstable sheep. I need to be close to Jesus, or it goes wrong really quick. 
And so he uses it to pull them close. He uses it to inspect the sheep. As the sheep come in, I spoke of this the other week, he begins to look not just at the surface, but behind the wool. Because behind the wool, that's where the disease is. Behind the wool, that's where it can get deadly because it conceals the fact that there's a big problem that's going on with that sheep that if not addressed, though it looks good on the outside, it will die of disease that's being covered up by the wool. See, some of y'all came in today with your church clothes on, your wool. And you want to get near the presence of God, but not close enough to be changed by the presence of God. But he's a good shepherd. He looks behind the wool. I heard a couple stories uh, when I was growing up. One was about two guys that were fishing on a bank. And as they were fishing, they kept seeing people screaming and uh, running by them in the rushing river. So one guy looks at his friend and is like, let's help, and he jumps into the water. And almost being taken by the current himself, he struggles to grab as many people as he can out of the river. Meanwhile, his buddy drops his pole and walks straight up the river. His friend in the water looks at him and goes, what are you doing? Get in here and help me. He says, I am. His friend in the water says, how are you helping me? He says, I'm going to find out who's throwing people in the river. See, a lot of you, you're looking at what's in front of you in the river, and the problem's much deeper. The problem predates some of you. The problem's much deeper than what you walked in, than, than, than what you've done and what you've encompassed. And you're sitting here thinking, it's all on me, it's all my fault. Sometimes the roots run deep in sin, the roots run deep in brokenness, and you've got to look below the surface. The word eradicate is what God comes to do. He comes to eradicate. It means to lift from the roots. So there's what you think is wrong that's symptomatic of what's really wrong. That's a root cause, and he deals with roots before he ever deals with symptoms because he's the good shepherd. He looks below the surface. His ambition is to restore you, to take what's upside down and put it right side up. And notice what it says. He restores my soul. He leads me, verse 23, verse 3, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. You see, walking with God leads to a righteous ending. When you don't walk with God, it will always end in some version of a pseudo, sort of fruitful, but not as fruitful as it could be because this world is broken and it can't produce what only God can produce, which is righteous fruit in and through your life. You see, sin makes promises in your life, but it can never deliver a sustainable and satisfying ending. That's why addiction exists, because you always need more. And one hit becomes two, two becomes three. One drink becomes two, two drinks becomes six. Next thing you know, you're out of control. All because you're chasing something that's not sustainable. Sin makes a promise, and it looks at a big picture and crops one little piece of that picture out and says, this is all you need. But in reality, your needs are way, way bigger than what that cropped image portrays. So th- this is the battle that you and I are in. We want and have been created to make an impact. We want to live a life that makes a difference. But at the end of the day, the only way for that to happen is to have a leader who knows the path of righteousness. Because Jesus said in himself, there's a narrow way and there's a wide way that leads to destruction. And you're not going to get a righteous ending and a righteous impact through and in your life if you're not following the righteous good shepherd who can bring righteous results on our behalf. You see, the word is, he is Jehovah Sidkidnu. He is our righteousness. The scriptures tell us that God the Father made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf that we might become his righteousness in Christ Jesus. The idea is Jesus came as righteous and we weren't. So he took his shirt off and put it on you. Because you were not going to become righteous. You couldn't be dressed in righteousness apart from him doing it. I'm glad I wore an undershirt today. Could have gotten sketchy. 
So he takes his righteousness off and clothes you in it. And he who is righteous makes what's unrighteous righteous. He who is the son of God became a son of man so the sons of men could become sons of God. Hmm. Now, you got to go through verse 3 before you get to verse 4. Because verse 4 is the worst moments that this world can throw at you. And before you get to verse 4, you better not just in theory but in reality believe that he is Jehovah Jireh, your provider. You better believe that he's Jehovah Shalom, your peace. You better believe that he's Jehovah Shammah, Jehovah Shammah, your healer. Uh, excuse me, Jehovah, I, I got ahead of myself, Shammah's coming at the end. Sometimes when you get in Hebrew, you get lost. It's Greek to me, I, I don't know. Shalom, peace, Rapha, healer, and Sikidnu, our righteousness. Then, when you know that this is who God is, and the valley comes, you can do what verse 4 says. What's the worst that can happen? What's the worst thing we face in humanity? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of, I will fear no evil. For you are, you who are provider, you who are righteous, you who are peace, you are with me. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You see, when verse four moments in life come, and you have the God that's been mentioned in verse 1, 2, and 3, you can not fear. You can move forward. My grandma, several years ago, uh, was facing terminal cancer. And we lived in California still, so I would come back, and I would see my grandparents. And when you live far away from family, you, you don't, like, talk about weather when you get together. Like, you get down to brass tacks. You know what I'm saying? Like, some of y'all got time for weather. I ain't got time for weather. Like, I need to know, do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Are you serving Jesus? Have you encountered the Holy Spirit? Is he leading your life? Like, are you making a difference? Like, like, I don't have time to mess around with, like, so, man, weather's pretty good today. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. See you next Christmas. Like, I, I, don't, I don't have time for that. So I, I came home for what would be the last time I would meet my grandma, and the, the Lord just kind of set up a moment where my grandma, who had been tough for the entire family, let her guard down. She looked at me as her grandson, and she said, Russ, I'm scared. Now, this woman has loved the Lord her entire life. I've heard her teach me about eternity and about the word of God more than any other preacher in my life. And the, the person that I thought was the strongest is allowing me in the most vulnerable of moments to see what's really going on. And that is in spite of her faith, there is still an uncertainty that comes when death comes that challenges even the best of stated beliefs. She believed that she would be in heaven with God, but it still was scary. She believed that she would live with him forever, but it still was a valley with lots of shadows in it for her. And so she looked at me, and in that moment, there was just this beautiful, I wasn't her pastor, I wasn't her grandson, we were just people that needed a savior. And I got to remind her of everything she had taught and modeled to me. Hey, Grandma, I want you to know he loves you, he cares about you, I want you to know that I am a part of the righteous heritage of what Jesus did through your life. I am the man of God that I am. I am the husband that I am in many ways because of the faith that you had. Anyone got a grandma like that? And so I began to like speak life into her and she began to get encouraged so much so that at the end I looked at her just before some family came back to the room and I said, do me a favor. When you close your eyes and you wake up on eternity's shore, will you just tell Jesus your grandson says, hey, and we erupted in laughter. And peace 
like a river flooded that room. Maybe you've been there. You're like, man, he's a conqueror. He overcomes death, but then you face death or you saw people that were strong in the faith face it and they had a moment where they wavered. It's because death is scary. And we spend a lot of times medicating and acting like, oh, don't worry about it, Jesus got this. No, 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 there, there's a moment where we acknowledge in and of ourselves, this is terrifying. My grandfather, oh, there's my grandma. Ain't she cute? She's fluffy. When she hugged you, y'all, I don't, if you didn't have a fluffy grandmother, you missed out. Like, like she just engulfed you and you smell like her for the rest of the year and I miss it so much that hug my granddad this is a picture of him and my son he had a different kind of valley he was in you see sometimes the valley is the shadow of death but sometimes the valley is a long path of suffering he started struggling with dementia over 10 years ago uh, began to lose his mind in many ways not knowing who he were he thought I was his deceased son several times uh, he began saying stuff that was like completely contrary to the character of the man of God that we had known him to be. And I remember one conversation with him when we were back from California. He looked at me and said, son, I just feel like God hates me. I'm like, well, why, granddad? He said, because he won't let me die. The valley's long. And sometimes the suffering doesn't end. And sometimes it's harder to live in suffering than it is just to let it be over with and let glory begin. And that's the valley he was in, and he was afraid. It was a difficult season of life. Here's what I want you to see. The valleys come to reveal weaknesses in your state of beliefs, but not for shame. Not for shame. Not, not so that God can go, I told you you weren't holy enough. I told you you weren't faithful enough. The valleys come because God wants your roots to run deep. God wants your confidence on the other side to grow great. God wants your worship in spite of whatever the next challenge comes on the other side of the valley to be even greater. You see, all of us have different valleys we'll go through. The valley of the shadow of death may be the last one we face, but we have valleys of prolonged pain and suffering, valleys of relational pain, valleys that face injustice, valleys that come into contact with evil, valleys of depression and mental health that we don't talk about enough in the church. Because you can love Jesus and be depressed. And I don't care what someone told you that you just need to love him more or have more spirit. No, there is difficult valleys we go through where we have to be dependent on Jesus, where the answer doesn't come quickly. And we need to be more gracious to each other as we walk through those as the people of God. So the text, verse four, it tells us what to do when the valley comes. What do you do when you find yourself in a valley if you have the God provider, the God who's your peace, the God uh, who is with you in that presence? What do you do? Well, even though I walk, you walk. You don't run. A lot of us want to run. Let's get through this. This is the bad part. Let's fast forward to the end. There's no fast forward in the valley. It's a dangerous area. It's a dangerous place to be. The shepherds in the Middle East, they, they would have led their sheep in the winter to higher elevations to find sustenance as the winter came in in the Middle East. So they would have to go through deep valleys to find these elevations where there was sustenance for the sheep to feed on in winter. In order to get there, they would have to traverse deep valleys where the sheep were susceptible to attack and danger. There were cliffs. There were rocks. There were dangerous places to tread on. But there was a steady walk that the sheep would take with the shepherd through. They weren't running, but they were walking. They weren't trying to get through it as fast as they could. They were trying to walk through it faithfully. And I believe the reason they can do that is the sheep have been through a valley before. This is an annual thing. 
And Jesus kind of promised us that there will be these circular, consistent things that are going to happen if you follow him. In John 16, verse 33, he says this. Look at it with me. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace, not solutions, not the other side, peace. In the world you will have trouble, 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 trouble. Trouble been following me since the day I was born. Worry. Anyone ever? No? Okay, moving on. <laughs> Tribulation. But take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. It, it shouldn't be a surprise that when you profess Jesus, you declare war. And there's an enemy that desires to sift you, to break you down, to defeat you. But, but don't, don't worry about the enemy. Don't be overcome with worry about the outcome. I've overcome that. I already walked out of the grave and wrote the ending to the story. The revelation has been revealed, not to be revealed. Are you tracking with me? So we walk through the valley. Here's the point. The point in the valley is not to dismiss your suffering, not to dismiss your pain and struggles, but to warn us that there will be problems in this life on the path of long-observed obedience towards Christ. But you've been given the Spirit of God. You've been given a resource, a well, that in the valley when your throat is dry and your mouth needs water, there's a living water that you have in your shepherd. You can walk because the shepherd is near. You, you don't need to freak out. You don't need to go out to like the middle of a, a woodruff somewhere that hasn't been overdeveloped, find you a hole, dig it, bury supplies and some gold bars. No, we walk through the valley even in the face of uncertainty. We walk. That's the first thing. We move. We walk. Number one. Number two, we move forward. You see, some of us in the valley, we're all about movement, but it ain't forward movement. It's backward movement. And this is what the Israelites did. They get broken free by the hand of God and the power of God, and they're like, man, that's a lot of water. That's a big army. Wasn't slavery great? God is not going back to your past. He has redeemed, forgiven, and paid for it. So you're not going to find him in a redo of the past. You're going to find him in the current grace and mercy that's given you a present. Man, I, I don't know. Are y'all awake? Is anyone here? I mean, like, he's not back there. He's not wringing his hands going, man, we really screwed it up, and your entire life has been turned upside down, and it's never going to come back because, you know, what happened in that season? You're never going to be where I wanted you to be. Like, I was in control. I gave you a shot. And, and just like that Eminem song, you screwed it up. Last I checked, he's the God of the second chance, the third chance, the fourth chance. He's an on-time God. He's present in the present fully. He's not living in your past. So some of you are trying to like rewind. So some of us fast forward and want to run through. Some of us want to rewind and we want to run back to where we were so we can get a redo so we'll get better results. God, God's not back there. God's right here in the valley with you. We're not aimlessly walking around in valleys, but there is another side to it. Excuse me. We may not see the other side on this side of life, but there is another side. The Bible repeatedly reminds the believer that our home is in the presence with God. That's home. That's why in Leviticus it says you're pilgrims passing through. That's why in other texts it says you're sojourners. This ain't home. Yeah, build a house. Yeah, save for retirement. Yeah, be responsible and steward in a way that honors God. But at the end of the day, this isn't the best that you're ever going to get. The best won't come until the trumpet blows and Jesus says, let's go. 
And that's what we live for. That's what we live in, even if it's in the valley. Let me just remind you, whatever it is you're in, whatever the valley is right now, your value, your, your valley is not eternal. As Paul would say, this light and momentary affliction is preparing in Christ Jesus for you an eternal weight of glory. Yes, the suffering is real. Yes, the pain is difficult. Yes, it doesn't seem like it's gonna end fast enough and you're thinking in your mind, I don't know how we're gonna deal with tomorrow or a year from now and if something doesn't change, I'm gonna lose my mind. Maybe that's where you're at. Let me remind you that Jesus walking out of the tomb said that's been dated. It is not eternal. It is not eternal. So we move forward. Number three, keeping reality. That's the thing about shadows, isn't it? Shadows are always bigger than the objects they come off of. It's always bigger. When I was a kid, I got left at church a bunch. Anybody, like you got left? I, don't, I think my parents were trying to get across that I needed Jesus. So they would just leave me there, like hoping that maybe it'd be like a Jesus in the temple moment. And in, in our old Methodist church that I grew up in, they had a felt board, 1970s felt board, like you could touch it and it would like change presentation of the Last Supper. I got three amens. Okay, like, like I'm talking creepy stuff, not Middle Eastern Jesus, like Swedish white Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? To where you're like, I, I thought he had a tan. There's a lot of sun. Now. In the middle of the, I don't understand how he got blue eyes. Like, I didn't even, never seen it. But their eyes on that thing would move when no one was around. And I, they would leave me in the back of the church and to get to the telephone, because this isn't, this isn't cell phone era. This is like, you got to go like, like Pedro, or, or, or what's his name? What was his brother's name uh, from Napoleon Dynamite? What was his name? The brother. He's been chatting with babes all day online. Napoleon. No one knows. Anyway, you had to get on a wired phone and you had to get a cord if you was trying to talk to your, you know, crush and go around the corner and shut the door in the corner. And he was like, hey girl, can't talk real loud right now because they're trying to listen. You know, like, like you had to go past that painting to get to that corded phone. And they were looking at you like, you're going to confess? This scared me to death to go around that. I'm telling you, there were shadows that came off that thing that scared me to death. I never, I, one time I ran and slid on the floor underneath it, hoping that the thing wouldn't like look at me. Like that's how scared I was of this thing. Now, I, I know we're laughing at me being stupid, but here's my point. It was just a shadow. Yeah, there was an object there and it was real, but it was just a shadow coming off that object trying to make it bigger than it was. This is what Jesus did. He turned death, the biggest enemy and nemesis of humanity, into a shadow. <laughs> it's a shadow. It's not the end. Most of you are living like this is all there is, but the Bible says this is a vapor. It's gone. The best of what we have on this side of eternity will pale in comparison to the other side. Like, think about this. Some of you are breaking your back for gold, and God's like, I'm going to pave my streets in it. I don't know, you can get security in the thing that's pavement in heaven or you can get your security in the God that's paving heaven with it. I, I, I think I'm gonna go with him. Just trying to throw that out there. Preaching hard, okay. So we keep reality, we keep reality in the shadow of death. That means we don't think irrationally and we don't react irrationally. We draw close because it's just a shadow. First Corinthians chapter 15, it says this, uh, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your 
sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But Christ has redeemed us from the law. He saved us from the law. He took the punishment that we had earned under sin and set us free from it. So we walk forward keeping reality in the valley. Are you walking forward keeping reality or are you making your home here? Are you saying stuff like, well, it's just always going to be this way, I mean, on this side of eternity. Don't Christianize it and act like you're being faithful. We've just always been here, you know, like my mom's mom's mom was here. I mean, we always fight at Christmas. It's just the way we work, you know. Come from a family of drinkers, just going to be a drinker. I, like, 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 stop. Stop pronouncing death over yourself. Walk forward. Walk forward, keeping reality. And number four, fearing no evil. You walk forward, you fear no evil. You walk forward, keeping reality, fear no evil. Now, a lot of times pastors cheapen this part. And you're like, you've heard that. You, like, you've heard, like, don't be afraid. But it's really scary. And, and the pastor's like, well, don't, don't worry about that. And you're like, that, that, wasn't, I, that wasn't good enough. Like, I, I am worried about it. I am afraid. And, and what we often do as pastors is we don't take time to explain the tension here. We're in what's called overlapping ages. Jesus has risen, yay. Okay? Death has a end date. And the world still is existing in its current broken state, boo. And these two overlap. It's not that Jesus hasn't come, that his presence isn't here, that the Holy Spirit isn't powerful, that God's not saving, that miracles aren't happening, that there's not, uh, you know, that you're not more than a conqueror. It's that there's still a broken world that we live in and it knows how to be broken without you helping it. And so when you find yourself in these overlapping states, let's start by saying this, the valley is real. It's real. It's not a figurative valley. It's not a fake, like it's real. The valley is real. It is destructive. It breaks families apart. It breaks marriages down. It causes identity issues. It brings up insecurities that are deep and rooted within us. It clouds our vision from being able to see reality. It is real. It is destructive. The Bible's always talked about this. And we should be on guard against it. That's why Ephesians exists for you to know that you need some armor if you're going to be a Christian in this world. You're going to need a belt of truth. And a, I maybe got that wrong. Did I get that right? It's from the memory. I got, the, I got, it, I got it right. I knew I got it right. You're going to need your armor. So it's real, but the tension is this. Yes, it's real, but he's with you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with. The confidence isn't like, I got endurance. I got gusto. I got passion. I work harder than everyone. No days off. That, that is not the confidence that you want in the valley. The confidence is, he is with me. The provider, my peace, is also Jehovah Shammah. He's there. Not in my past not wringing his hands out over what's to come in the future. He's there in the moment right in front of me. So let me ask you a few questions. Are you today walking through your valley or making your home in it? You're walking through or building a camp? I'm not telling you it's gonna be easy. I'm not telling you it's gonna be over with quick. I'm just telling you that he's with you and he desires to lead you forward wherever that may be, 
for his glory and for his purpose. Are you walking through? Are you making your home in it? Number one. Number two, are you recognizing that God is with you in the valley? He's not like theoretically like up in the heaven somewhere, like he is here. He put his spirit inside of the believer. He's filled you with a power and a source that you have. So when you don't have enough, God's like, yeah, that's why you have the spirit. So that you can go, I need you. I mean, for some of you, the best thing you could do today is just go, I, I don't have it in me anymore. I need you to give me what I don't have. And God's like, thank God, thank me. I'm trying to get you here. Are you recognizing that God is with you? And finally, you need to remember this. The only way to get to higher mountains is to go through deeper valleys. And what the enemy meant for evil, oh, God said he meant for good. What was meant to demote you, God uses this to promote those who are in Christ Jesus. And the deep valleys bring us to high mountaintops where we see God with greater joy, with greater worship, with greater glory than we've ever seen him before. So our prayer team's here. We'd like to give you a chance to respond. They're gonna be here to pray with you. If you need to come to the altar and repentance, that's normal. It's not abnormal. We don't do that like once a year, like yeah, I did that 10 years ago. No, no, no. Repentance is the normal posture of a believer. I recognize I've been living independent from God. I need God. I'm bending my knee before God. And I don't care what y'all say about me while I'm getting down on my knees because y'all are sitting at the table like the Pharisees while I'm bending my knee like the woman that knows he needs them. Don't, don't play. Don't play up in here. We didn't come to like get around Jesus. We came to be healed by Jesus. So the altar's here. There's people in the back that would love to pray with you as well. You move as the Lord leads. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's respond. Let's move. In Jesus' name.